This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are a first-time listener, and if you are here at 88.7 for the first time, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. As you've been studying God's Word, maybe there's an issue or a challenge that you're facing in your life, or you're looking for biblical counsel as it relates to uh, your ministry, your family. Uh, All you need to do is pick up the phone And you can call us locally at 843-525-1859, 525-843-EXCHANGE, 843-525-1859. Here on this Easter week, we're glad to be here with you. And uh, when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're a little more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question uh, to Deb in our studio adjacent to us, and she'll put it in email form and text it right here to us in the studio. So let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning, Rick. As always, it's great to be here. All righty. Uh, very good, Pastor. And as you mentioned, this is the Easter week, and uh, we've got a couple of questions relating to that. The first, a woman would like to know, is the crown of thorns saved from the fire at Notre Dame, Notre Dame Cathedral, the authentic crown worn by Jesus? I don't think so. Uh, it's probably as uh, authentic as the breast milk of the Virgin Mary and the fingernails of the Apostle Peter that are there in the church at Wittenberg. Um, the Catholics are notorious for icons. Uh, they just have millions of them, it seems, all across the world. Uh, the, and you have Catholics in some parts of the world, you know, prostrating themselves before human hair that came from one of the apostles or the apostle Paul's teeth they have in one place. In fact, uh, as St. Um, Saint Helena, um, Helena of Constantine, Constantine's mother, Helena, uh, she, of course, was commissioned by her son to go to Jerusalem and to uh, find certain locations where different uh, biblical historical uh, things had happened. I think she was probably right on some because, obviously, uh, there was indeed uh, some locals who had been there generation after generation, and I, I think you can make a good argument that uh, the Church of the Nativity is the place where the Lord Jesus was born. And the, the challenge is, of course, when you go to these places, they, they build churches over the top of it. But she, for instance, identified 50 different locations on the Mount of Olives, most of which are dead wrong. Uh, she didn't know the Bible, um, and one of the uh, things that she found, too, in Jerusalem was uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they say Christ was crucified, um, was then uh, laid, you know, for preparation, and then and buried. But the tomb that they have in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, though, again, there's a little chapel built o- over the top of that, and that's inside of a huge church, um, it doesn't fit the biblical pattern. It's a straight tomb where you walk straight in, 
where the Bible is very clear and very specific that it's a right-handed tomb. So, no, do I do I think... Uh, in, in, and by the way, when she was looking for um, the place that Christ was crucified, she also claimed that she found a genuine piece of the cross and actually some of the nails that were nailed into Christ's body. Hey, listen, there's been enough genuine pieces of the cross to build a, a three-story building. It's just uh, absolutely crazy. Um, but I don't think it's by accident uh, that when you step into Catholicism, this is a major difference, obviously, between uh, Roman Catholics and uh, Protestants, or what I might prefer to say Bible-believing Christians, is that we don't put a lot of stock in in objects. In fact, we put no stock in it at all. In fact, what I also find interesting is that if you look a copy of the Ten Commandments that I memorized as a young Catholic boy, it's different from the Ten Commandments that are found in the Bible. Well, what te- which commandment do they change? Well, um, the Scripture says, The Lord spoke face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire, and while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and so on. And then uh, it goes on and it describes the commandments that he gave. And he said, you shall have no other gods before me. Check. We, we agree on that. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now, interestingly, that commandment is not in the Roman Catholic set of 10 commandments. Well, how do they come up with 10? Well, when you come down to the commandment, you shall not covet, they divide it into uh, two parts, not to cover your neighbor's goods and not to cover your neighbor's wife. But actually, um, the text says you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, um, you, and you shall not uh, desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. It's one commandment. But again, I, I think this is rather convenient because there's such an iconic church uh, where icons, they say, are not being worshipped but are promoting worship. So no, I don't think it's the crown of thorns at all. And what's sad, I've been into Notre Dame Cathedral, many of our listeners here have, and it's a dead church. It's an apostate church. Uh, they do not preach the gospel there. They preach a false message. And you talk about varying degrees of liberalism in Roman Catholicism, because, again, there's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches uh, on paper, and then there's the Roman Catholic Church in practice, and the French Roman Catholic Church is about as far away from Roman Catholic doctrine as anyone can get. I mean, it's just sheer heresy covered in that country, and of course, only about 5% of the people in France even attend church, but most of them claim to be either Protestant or Catholic, the majority Catholic. And, of course, that demographic has changed uh, greatly because they've let several hundred thousand Muslims now into the country. And so that's an opportunity for the evangelicals who are in France there as well to reach the uh, Muslim population. So, you know, I know this priest went in there and risked his life, and, uh, and I'm not saying that what he did was a bad thing. I mean, artwork is artwork. But do I think it's the crown of thorns that Christ wore? Absolutely not. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and our next caller would like to know 
What is the typical eschatology of the Southern Baptist, and does it have anything to do with Augustine's City of God? Hey, by the way, before I leave that first question, let me also say there was a time in Israel's history, if you remember, the time of the brazen serpent, when um, God had Moses lift up the brazen serpent in the wilderness. And of course, it's a type, it's an illustration of what Christ would do, as Jesus teaches us in John 3, when he tells Nicodemus how to be born again. And of course, uh, what happens to that brazen serpent that Moses made? Well, Second Kings tells us that it became an icon, it became an idol that people uh, burned incense to and worshipped, and uh, God had it ground up. So I think for the most part, God in his wisdom does not allow true, legitimate, real icons to continue because they become objects of worship. Okay, so this question here concerns the theology, the, the eschatology of Southern Baptists. Um, eschatos is the Greek word that means last things. So when we speak of eschatology, it's a 50-cent theological word from the Greek language that means the study of the last things. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is changing, and it's changing very, very fast. But I would say that most Southern Baptists, one, are premillennial. They are not amillennial like Augustine. So they are premillennial. They do believe that when Jesus comes again, he will literally, physically, actually reign upon the earth for 1,000 years. And most Southern Baptists are pre-tribulational premillennial. That is, they believe that Christ will come and catch up his people, the church, the body of Christ, made up of uh, Jews and Gentiles from nations across the world, and will be removed before that seven-year period. And then at the end of the second seven-year period, Christ will literally physically come back and rule and reign on the earth. Now, that is pretty much typical Southern Baptist theology, but it's changing very fast. And so one of the things that has changed in the SBC is there are more and more what we would call Reformed Baptists. And Reformed Baptists, in some respects, would reflect the uh, eschatology of Augustine. Uh, Reformation theology, unfortunately, it's one of those words that has been robbed from the body of Christ, kind of like the word charismatic Christian. If you ask me if I'm a charismatic Christian, I'd say, well, today I'd say yes and no, because there are so many connotations behind the word charismatic, everything from speaking in tongues to foaming at the mouth to being slain in the spirit to all kinds of things that happen. But the word charisma means gift. And in a technical sense, every Christian is a charismatic Christian because you believe that on your spiritual birthday, God gave you by his spirit a particular ability to serve the body of Christ. In much like physical gifts, that God gives you at birth. As you grow, they begin to manifest themselves, maybe with a voice or an athletic ability or an ability to make or create things. Even so, in the spiritual realm, that gift that God gives you on your spiritual birthday begins to manifest itself as you grow. Now, what's sad today is many Christians have not grown very much spiritually, and therefore they don't even know what a spiritual gift is, much less what theirs is. And there are 20 that are listed in the New Testament, at least 16 that are given today. And if that's a course you want to run down, I have a whole course on it at the Institute of Biblical Studies at Search the Scriptures, or even a test at searchthescriptures.org that you can take, 128 questions that might help you to identify your area of focus that God would want you to put 
uh, in the local church. But with that said, the word reformed is kind of the same thing. Reformed theology today now has a much different connotation. And so if someone says, I'm a reformed Christian, they basically are saying that they've adapted a lot of Calvinistic thinking. Uh, So Reformed Baptists are typically five-point Calvinists in terms of their soteriology. They believe in what's called TULIP, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, that the atonement, the death of Christ was only for the elect. He did not die for all people. I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints. Now, within TULIP, there is truth, but it's not all true. Some of it's false. But also with Reformed Baptists that have now made a major headway into the SBC uh, through a seminary called Southern Seminary. And I love Southern Seminary. I would send people there because it is biblical. They're great on a lot of gender issues, but they are definitely very reformed through a lot of their professors in a lot of their um, soteriology, their doctrines of salvation, and in their eschatology. So Augustine did not believe that Jesus would literally come and rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. He believed that the church had replaced the nation of Israel, that the church had become the new Israel. He learned that through another church father by the name of Origen. And of course, Origen, to speak in his day of a king who will come and rule and reign and be the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords, would have easily have cost him his life. And so I don't know if it was for practical reasons to save his neck or if he had a real true theological conviction Uh, We'll meet the guy in heaven. He's a believer. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, he adopted this view that the church had replaced Israel. And Augustine learned that from him. And Augustinian theology ends up becoming the seed theology for Roman Catholics. And so Roman Catholics say that God is done with the Jew. I mean, it's embarrassing to read what some of the popes have said about the Jewish people. Uh, When I was in Israel last December, I was over there teaching Uh, college students, and there were several hundred of us, uh, about a thousand actually, who were together for a meeting, and a Jewish woman came in, a PhD uh, woman, very bright, articulate Jewish woman, and she wanted us to understand how the Jewish people in Israel perceive Christians. And of course, um, she put up all these quotes of one pope after another with all the heinous, wicked, evil, terrible things they said about the Jewish people. That's driven by their theology that God's done with the Jewish people. So Southern Seminary is very Reformed, very Calvinistic in their eschatology, but it is only one of five Southern Baptist seminaries. I would say the average Southern Baptist church no longer, uh, I mean, is is not um, reformed in their eschatology. They still believe in a pre-tribulational, premillennial return of Christ. But that is changing because more and more men are going to Southern Seminary because of their deep commitment on some other issues that are important uh, where other people are wavering. So they may end up ending being on top, I don't know. But Reformed theology, as it's expressed in the doctrine of the church in relation to Israel, is very, very dangerous in that um, unknowingly it plants seeds 
for uh, a secondary view of looking at the Jews and not looking at them in a very positive primary way like they need to. And that's not good uh, because that will uh, plant a spirit in the culture um, so that when the tribulation does come, all of the nations of the world will literally actually turn against the people of Israel. God predicted that. It's going to happen. So, Did right. you explain to her that evangelical Protestants don't necessarily believe in um, the fact that uh, in replacement theology? Yeah, so it depends on the person that you're speaking to. I, I was talking about that woman, the Ph.D. woman. Oh, uh, no, I didn't have that opportunity. She came in, walked on the platform, um, spoke to about a 1,000 college students, and I was privileged to be there. One of the things that I emphasized the whole week was that God's not done with the nation of Israel. In fact, the, the organization that puts this whole thing together, uh, most of us know of Hobby Lobby, the Green family. And so the Green family started this organization called Passages because their concern now is that evangelical Christians on the college campus level are now being overrun and overtaken and overshadowed with Reformed theology, which leads to a very light view of how we should look at the Jewish people. And so typically, you know, to go uh, to Israel for a decent trip, I mean, uh, we're, we're going, God willing, again, and I'm leading a group. I'm not working for a Christian organization. They didn't pay me. They paid my way to go. But uh, I, I went there in December to teach college students, but I'm leading a group myself in September, and that's still open for another month. If you're interested, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. But the whole reason they started this was to get college students over to Israel to get a different perspective. And so typically it costs around five grand. If you're staying in a decent hotel, all your meals are paid for, everything. Uh, that's pretty typical price. Sometimes you'll see a cheaper trip and you find out it only includes breakfast and not lunch and dinner and all these other things. But um, And then you've got trips like Swindoll and other guys who charge like 7K. Uh, ours is right around five and we're not, we're not out to make money, but just to get people over there. But uh, they underwrite that trip, the Green family, Hobby Lobby. Mm. So what it ends up is the, the kids have to come up with $700 for basically a $5,000 trip. And then if they go through the trip, they get $200 of that back. So all they have to do is come up with $500. Uh-huh. They have to have some skin in the game because if they're going to make all these reservations and buses and hotels, they got to know, oh, oh, I'm at home three days. I guess I don't feel like going to Israel. It didn't cost me anything anyway. So, uh-huh. you know, so, so they have to have some skin in the game. But they are doing this because of what's happening in the American evangelical church. But, no, that lady doesn't really understand uh, that Roman Catholic, you see, in her mind, Catholic theology is Christian theology. So, like, I'm working with a rabbi right now, and the thing that he's amazed with is evangelical theology is not Roman Catholic theology. Or Orthodox theology, capital O, Orthodox, as you see in Jerusalem. So, yeah. All right, 843-525-1859. As you've mentioned already, this is Holy Week. And Teresa from Seabrook writes, I've always read Luke twenty two forty two, where Jesus asks for the cup to be removed as... Speaking of the cross, I just read an article proposing that he may have been asking for his current agony to be relieved as he was sweating blood and under great stress, so much that he could uh, have died from that. The article states that the angel that comes to strengthen him is the answer to that prayer. 
What is your understanding of Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane? Well, I think that is an absolutely nonsensical, uh, crazy interpretation. And I don't think you're going to find very many people who are going to espouse that. Because again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And so when you put the synoptics together, along with the gospel of John, where the um, sufferings of Christ, the anticipatory sufferings of Christ, they're seen in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a Hebrew word that means an oil press. And, And Jesus was literally under pressure. And so he said, let this cup pass from me. But then he makes it very clear, not my will, but your will be done. And so what was it that Jesus feared so much? What was it that Christ Jesus, as the God-man, feared so much? I don't think for a moment it was the fact that nails were going to be put through his hands and feet, that he would be scourged. Uh, The crown of thorns is not a typical uh, element in a crucifixion. That was done out of mockery along with the robe that they put and the reed they put in his hands. But the torture that he went through before the crucifixion was pretty typical. Uh, They would use what's called a flagellum, which was uh, basically uh, what we would call a bobby stick in terms of um, what it would feel like in a man's hand. But at the end of it, it had long leather straps, and at the end would be embedded small pieces of glass and lead and, and bone. And they would take it across a man's back and chest. Occasionally, they would hit a man's head, not usually by design, but Josephus is a first century historian notes that when it came across the face, there were instances where people's eyes were gorged out and their teeth were literally removed from their mouth. Um, The design of the flagellum was to uh, create torture before the crucifixion. And so it also helped uh, bring about typically a quicker death. If the flagellum, the whipping period, was not done to the precision that it needed to be done, and the Romans had mastered it, where they would take the skin off of a man's front or back, and sometimes uh, they would tear out the original um, the interior organs. But you didn't want to tear out all the original interior organs because then the person could die through the whipping. And so, again, it was a very precise, uh, trained position that a Roman soldier would, would perform. Not anyone could do it, just like not everyone can work a bullwhip. Uh, we had bullwhips when we were kids, and we would try to, it was popular like yo-yos were, and you'd have a bullwhip, and you'd learn to crack them and pop them. It, there was a skill to it. So there was with the flagellum. So it was designed to weaken the person. I don't think for a moment that, or the crown of thorns, or the fact that they pulled out Christ's beard, the fact that they hit his face, with their fists and with a club, that he was beyond a human recognition, as Isaiah the prophet had foreshadowed. I don't think that's what Christ was fearing when he said, Lord, take this cup from me. Uh, Jesus was one who practiced what he preached, and he told his own disciples that many people would be persecuted for their faith and even give up their lives for their faith, that men would kill them and think that they were doing God a favor. So I don't think for a moment that's what Jesus was squirreling back from. I think as the God-man, when he spoke of the cup, how is the cup used? Again, the best interpretive scripture is scripture itself. It's used throughout the scripture of the wrath of God, and the wrath of God is a major theme all the way through the scripture. Um, the Old Testament speaks of God's wrath with 
uh, some 20 different words in Hebrew that appear over 600 times. And sometimes, unfortunately, people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of um, wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. They've not read their Bible. Uh, that is just really um, a nonsensical statement. Uh, God's wrath is spoken uh, throughout the New Testament. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Paul would say, and he'd speak about things like sexual immorality and impurity and loss and evil desire. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming for such things. Ephesians does the same truth and puts the same emphasis. So the cup in Scripture is found throughout the Psalms, found throughout Jeremiah, is the coming wrath of God. And in the New Testament passages like Revelation 14 that we studied recently, it speaks about uh, those who are going to drink the cup of the wine of God's fury, the cup of his wrath. And so the thing that Jesus really sweat blood over, it's, it's literally a physical condition. It's called hydratomosis. And it can happen to a person. It's very unusual, but it happens to a person who's under incredible, intense pressure, so much so that as they agonize over whatever it is that's going through their mind, the small, minute capillaries under the skin burst, and a person literally physically sweats blood. So what Jesus was sweating blood over is what he spoke over, namely the cup, that he as a sinless, perfect individual was going to take upon himself our sin. And in taking upon himself our sin, you know, that, that, that enough was to make him recoil that he would become sin for us as a holy person. If there's anything we're going to understand when we step into heaven, it's the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Isaiah will record. Uh, we're going to be just overwhelmed with the holiness of God. And listen, if Lot's soul could be troubled as Second Peter tells us, by the sin that was around him in his day. And Lot was not a, um, a, the first you know, model of an Old Testament believer I'd want to present before you. He was saved. He was righteous Lot, but he was carnal Lot. He made a lot of very foolish decisions. But if his soul could be tormented by what he experienced there in Sodom and Gomorrah, how much more so? the Son of God who is sinless, when he anticipated not only taking our sin upon himself, he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross because his death is going to be substitutionary, but to have a perfect love relationship broken. You know, when you, when you really love someone and it's broken, however that happens, sometimes, you know, uh, you lose your spouse, you lose a child, you lose a close friend, and and it's just heartbreaking to the individual. Well, you know, we as fallen univ- people can experience love as those made in God's image. Jesus on one occasion said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your father? In other words, if we can express love even as fallen, um, depraved people whose heart is not in the right place, How much more does God, who's infinitely holy without sin? And so as Jesus anticipated the fact that, Father, if there's some other way, and so he 
in his humanity, he's he's struggling there so much so that he's sweating blood. But again, as you put it together with John's account, he is determined to obey and do the will of God, whatever the cost is. So that that's just a silly commentary that someone came up with, and they've not done their homework very well. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, a new listener would like to know if giving 10% of the money you earn was for the Jewish people, or are we to do it today? Well, that's a good question. You know, sometimes you'll hear people, well, we're not under uh, law, we're under grace, and, you know, 10% is a legalistic standard that God set up for the Jewish people and it has no role in the church today. And then sometimes to further their argument, they'll say, well, it wasn't 10%, it was 13%, or some would even argue it was 23%, and they point to these two other occasions when people gave a tithe. By the way, let me make a commercial here. The week after Easter, the Wednesday after Easter, I begin a new series that I'll be teaching on Wednesday nights on uh, God handling God's finances. And we are, we are moving into a very precarious time in American history. Uh, and if there's ever a time for the Christian to be a good steward and to really let register in his heart and mind to have his thinking renewed on how to handle finances, it's now. Because time is running out in terms of what we're experiencing. People look around, they say the economy is fantastic. We've got the lowest unemployment in 50 years and people have more money in their pocket. My friend, it is an illusion. It is a dream because what we are facing right now is disastrous unless some real change is made, but no one wants to make it. No one wants to deal with the tough decisions. We're $22 trillion in debt. Some think the kick point is $26 trillion. Some would say $28. Uh, the, the broadest number is $30 trillion. My point is, is that we're going to reach a point where we're going to be paying more money in interest to service the loan than we actually, uh, than the whole economy put together. Uh, it's, uh, it, and again, people debate what number that's going to be, but when that number happens, we're going to have the Great Depression. We're going to have the same scenario that we had in the 1920s. In uh, all of the little props that we've used to try to boost up recessions, they're going to be gone because we, we, we basically don't have any left. I say all that to say you really need to know not what just God says about tithing, but also about giving and debt and all these things. And we're going to be studying that in detail. And we will study this whole, I think, bogus argument. We're not under law. We're under grace. Therefore, we don't tithe. And we'll look at that very carefully. But let me just say that um, tithing is not part of God's ceremonial law that was indeed unique to the nation of Israel. It's part of God's moral eternal law. When God said to the Jew, you shall not commit adultery, he expects you to keep that law today. You say, well, that was given to Israel. Yes, it was, but he expects you to keep that law today. And there are some laws that are written in the Torah that are uh, not found anywhere in the New Testament, but they're still fully applicable today. Why? Because they're a part of God's moral law. And so, for instance, Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, 
weak as it was through the flesh. The law could not save you. Why? Because you have a fallen, sinful nature, and you keep breaking that law. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why did he do this? So that, don't miss this, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We're going to obey God's laws. It might be fulfilled in us, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So tithing is not part of the Mosaic law. It's part of God's eternal law. Uh, Abraham was the first one ever to give a tithe. He gives it to Melchizedek. Some think that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't think so. They could be right, but I don't think so. Um, You might want to listen to my series on Hebrews where I deal with Melchizedek. But I do think he is certainly what we would call a type or an illustration of Christ. How do I know that? Because the New Testament compares him that way in the book of Hebrews. But whether you think he's an actual pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, like the angel of the Lord, or whether he's a type of Christ, it changes nothing. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Why didn't he give 2%? Why didn't he give 50% or even 100%? Because God had revealed to him to give a tenth. Abraham is the father of the faithful. What a beautiful descriptive phrase that God uses to set this man apart. He's the father of the faithful. He's a man who is commended for his great faith. How does a man get faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this was an expression of faith. How did he know it? Because God had revealed it to him. Ever before Moses had penned the first verse of the Torah, God had revealed to Abraham. So Abraham commences the process. Jacob continues the process. Jacob gave a tenth of all that he had. Moses later commands the process, as does Nehemiah, as does Malachi. When you come into the New Testament, Jesus commends it in Matthew 23, 23. So you shouldn't cancel it. And Jesus said, over teaches others to break the least of these my commandments. He'll be called least in the kingdom of God. So before you just so quickly, because you hear some preacher on the radio say, tithing is not for today. It's just for the Jew. Oh, good. I guess I don't have to tithe. And you tell others that, and you teach others that without any careful, thoughtful, biblical study and consideration. Uh, you're setting yourself up for a loss of reward in the coming kingdom that God has for his people. But that's the real short answer. I will go through all of these passages. I will look at what the difference is between ceremonial, moral law. We'll look at the so-called three tithes that bring some to a 13 or a 23% tithe, and we'll look at them contextually, and I think it will become very, very clear to you. But some don't want to hear that. They basically would say, don't confuse me with the truth. I don't want to know. But you need to know, especially in the day that we're living in, because the Christians who are going to be in the best shape when the economy crashes, and it may not crash, But if we don't do anything, if we just keep doing what we're doing and nobody addresses the issue of national debt, I mean, there's already little things that are turning up. Student loans have passed the trillion dollar mark. Now we have over a trillion dollars in student loans. Credit card debt passed last year the trillion dollar mark. Americans for the first time ever have one trillion dollars in credit card debt that they carry. Um, Car loans just passed the trillion dollar mark. And I just read a statistic recently that 700,000 Americans are three or more months behind in their car payments. 
we are in a terrible position. It's not as good as you think. And unless someone addresses the hard issues, you know, um, Medicare is going to be bankrupt. Medicaid is going to be bankrupt. Social Security is going to be bankrupt. It's all coming down the pike. So you need to know what God says. Mm. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Diane writes, Hi, Pastor Brogy. I listen to your preaching on the radio outside Savannah, Georgia, and it is a tremendous blessing. So refreshing to hear the Word of God preached unapologetically, especially in these compromising times. Wanted to ask you what you felt were the only reasons for divorce given in the Bible. Well, um, it's a fair question. Let me take a little sip of tea there. Um, God obviously doesn't want a divorce. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. Um, God gives a concession in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, that most would agree on. The point of um, debate is not the concession, uh, but what someone should do after that concession has been experienced in their life. Uh, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, when you come to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, you... It's kind of a hinge verse in the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. He said, now concerning about the things which you wrote. And so they wrote Paul a letter, and they started asking him questions. Paul, what do we do about this or that? And so beginning in seven one, all the way through the end of the epistle, he ticks off their questions one by one. And they have questions about marriage, whether in light of the uh, current persecution, should we even give our daughters to men who might in turn lose their lives? Should we keep them virgins their whole life and and not give them in marriage? And what about if, um, you know, you're in a mixed marriage and now someone's become a Christian when the gospel's preached and your husband's an unbeliever? And uh, what do we do? And so Paul says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Why? Because the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, and so forth. So it's interesting here because there are two parallels. In verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And that's in contrast to verse 12 where he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So on the one hand, he's saying, this is something that Jesus spoke on, and I'm going to tell you what he said. On the other issue, he says, this is Jesus did not speak on. But I'm going to tell you what he thinks, and he can do that. Why? Because he's an apostle, and he is writing under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God. The words of the apostle Paul in this piece of instruction on an issue that Jesus never addressed during his three-year public ministry is just as inspired as the red-letter words in the Gospels, because it is all God-breathed. It is equally inspired. So Paul says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, why would she leave? Why does Paul leave it open? Because he knows there are situations where a woman must leave sometimes to protect herself. She comes home and her husband beats her up repeatedly, black or blue. What would I say to a woman? I'd say, you need to get in a safe house. 
you need to protect yourself. Um, maybe uh, she comes home to a husband or the husband comes home to her and he's just a repeated adulterer. And every week he's sleeping with a different woman. And he potentially is then going to bring disease into her body. And there are many sexually transmitted diseases today for which there is no cure. You, you can't put up with that nonsense. So there are times to leave, sometimes for her own protection, sometimes for the protection of the children. But what are her options? If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Or if the shoe's on the other foot, the husband should not divorce his wife. So in other words, he's saying you remain single or you go back to your husband. Where did Jesus teach that? Paul is saying this is not what I think. This is what Jesus said. He taught it by what he said concerning divorce and remarriage. So you might want to listen to my sermon on Matthew chapter 19. Uh, if you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, go under the search bar, search by scripture, go to type in Matthew 19. I think this sermon is entitled, uh, Dads Who um, Don't Keep Their Promises. And um, listen to that message. Now, I will tell you, there are some good godly men who would say that adultery dissolves the marriage bond and gives only the innocent party freedom to remarry. And honestly, if people followed that rule today in evangelicalism, there would be very few second marriages. I don't see it that way. I explain why. I explain why the exception clause is unique to Matthew's gospel. I look at a number of Old Testament slash New Testament passages, and we look at it together systematically. So it's an hour-long sermon, but I think that would be helpful to you. Um, Ultimately, let me just give you one verse to ponder on, and this is from Romans chapter 7, and again, it's consistent with what Jesus revealed in the Gospels. He said, don't you know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Uh, Now, Paul is using an illustration to help us to see our illustration to the law. And again, there's a relationship, not to the ceremonial law, but to the moral law. But here's the point is the law can't justify you because it can't save you, and only the death of Christ can. But to illustrate that principle, he looks at a married woman, and he says, look, she's bound by law while her husband's alive, such that if um, her husband's died, she's free from that law. She can get married again. But if her husband is living and then she is joined to another man, she's called an adulteress. You know, I just counseled with a guy the other day, and he said, you know, I, I know the Bible a little bit, and I know that, um, you know, I committed adultery, and I divorced my wife, and I married another, and, you know, I'm reading the Bible, and was that right? And I said, obviously not. I'd be lying to you to soften it. So what do I do? I said, well, you can't unscramble eggs, you know, and so you have to move forward, but you need to move forward honestly. You need to deal with your past in an honest way and receive God's forgiveness, but not to use that as a justification to encourage others to repeat what you've done and for others to replicate 
your lifestyle? Because sometimes people are in bad marriages and they see someone who's on a second, third. I just spoke to someone who was on their fifth marriage. And, um, you know, they think, well, you know, Joe finally found someone he's happy with. Maybe I can be like Joe and I need to dump my wife or my husband and find someone else. Don't do it. It's a very, very sacred, sacred vow that God gives, and we don't want to dismiss it. All right. All right. We had another caller who wanted to know if Christians should observe Lent and perhaps pledge to deprive themselves of something that really matters to them as a symbol of their observance of what our Lord Jesus gave up for us. I wouldn't. I wouldn't encourage anyone in 10,000 years to observe Lent because it comes out of Roman Catholicism and it's based on a false system of how one achieves righteousness. And so in Roman Catholic theology, they do not deny the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They affirm that. But they do not believe that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. And so in the response to the Protestant Reformation, uh, there was a um, meeting held by the Council of Trent that made, met over the course of 18 years. And from 1542 to 1568, these people, Roman Catholic leaders, would come, and, and they wrote a document called, called the Council of Trent. And in it, they bash evangelical Christians. Sometimes we're accused of bashing Roman Catholics. I'll tell you who is bashed. It's not evangelicals bashing Catholics. It's Catholics bashing evangelicals because over a hundred times they attack those who believe the simple plan of salvation that is taught in the scriptures. And so in the Council of Trent, I think it's Canon 12, but don't quote me on that, but you could Google it and find it easy enough. But it says, for instance, that if a man says that you are justified by the merits of Christ's death alone and that justification is not also an increased, enhanced, and earned through human merit, he is to be accursed. He is not to be accursed. They are to be accursed. That's a different gospel. That's saying that what Jesus did is not enough. So in Roman Catholic theology, they would say faith in Jesus plus the good works you do, and they would take James chapter 2 way out of context. Faith without works is dead, and I have a whole message on that in my series in James if you want to study it. Um, and they would say, Jesus plus, Jesus plus what you do equals salvation. And that's why in Catholicism, if there's not enough plus on your side, then typically you go to purgatory. There is a real place called purgatory. And when you go into some of these old cathedrals and buildings in Europe, you'll often see ancient medieval pictures of purgatory. And you see these people who are in the flames of purgatory with arms stretched upward, hoping to be lifted out by an angel. Why are people in purgatory? Because they did not do enough on their side of the equation to satisfy God, so they're going to suffer for a period of time. And so the whole doctrine of Lent is based on a merit system, where the biblical equation would say your faith in Christ alone gives you, secures you, equals salvation, plus good works. That good works are not the means to salvation, but the fruit of salvation. That is an entirely different outlook. That's the Bible outlook. That's the position of God's Word. You say, well, that's just a minor difference. The difference is whether you go to heaven or hell. If you embrace the Catholic position that good works help merit salvation, and you believe that, and you die believing that, you will spend an eternity without God. Now, there are many Roman Catholics who are born again, 
They've heard Billy Graham. Uh, I've had, I have people who write me who listen to me up in New England and the various stations that were on up there. And they said, I've become a Christian and I was raised Catholic and, and I've understood for the first time. And some are still going to the Catholic church. Listen, I'll just give you one verse. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. Um, this is in reference, by the way, to Abraham, because Paul in Romans 3 has just delineated very carefully that a man is not justified, not saved in God's sight through the works of the law, because the works of the law only give us an awareness of sin. And apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And that's what it means to say you're not under law, but under grace, that you're not justified by your law keeping, be it the ceremonial or moral law. You're justified totally by the grace of God. And by the way, God always taught that. It's not like people in the Old Testament got saved one way, and under the New Testament, we get saved a different way. And so Romans 3, he says, for we maintain, 328, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so someone might reason, well, that's Paul's message. That's not what God revealed in the Old Testament. And so he says, no, this is affirmed through the law and the prophets, through the Old Testament. And to prove that, he illustrates by dipping back into Israel's history with their two most esteemed people, Abraham and David. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified, saved by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. How do I know? For what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You go back to Genesis 15. God had already made a promise that through Israel, all the nations of the world would be blessed. How so? Because through Israel would come the savior of the world. And the savior was not just for the Jewish people, but for any nation of the world. And anyone who would believe what the God of Israel had promised in bringing a savior, they would be justified. Well, God takes Abraham outside of his tent. He's an old man. His body is basically beyond the ability to procreate. And he says, look up at the stars in the sky. That's what your descendants are going to be someday. And God reminds him of a promise he had made earlier, that from his loins is going to come the Savior of the world. And Abraham believes that, and he's reckoned as righteous. Here's the application. Here are the two verses I was going to tell you about. Now, to the one who works, his wage, his paycheck, you might say, is not credited as a favor, but what is due. In other words, you work hard all week and your boss says, hey, here's your paycheck. You don't say, oh, thank you for this marvelous, wonderful favor you've bestowed upon me. It's not a favor. You just put in 60 hours. He owes it to you. It's not credited as a, as a favor. It's what's due. The old English says it's an obligation. But here's the contrast. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Who does God credit with his righteousness, which is necessary to enter the kingdom of God? He's characterized by someone who does not work. Unless you come to God bankrupt, the old um, hymn, 16th century hymn by Augustus Top Lady said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. To the one who does not work, but believes in him. You see, if you're working, you are 
plain human merit, and you are denying what God says about you, that you are desperately wicked. When you're working, you're saying, I can help save myself, and you're denying the sufficiency of the cross. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. God doesn't justify the guy who thinks he's good enough. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to save, quote-unquote, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. God saves the ungodly, the bankrupt person who believes in him, who puts his faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. So Lent denies that. And I wouldn't want to do anything that would confuse, not to mention the purpose of Lent is to earn merit with God. None of the works we do earn merit with God. I am already justified. I am beloved in God's sight. I can't do anything to improve my position of righteousness that was imputed to me on the basis of the cross in my faith in what Jesus did. I am as much loved by God as I will ever be. But as an expression of that love, I obey Christ and I do my works. All right, good question. All right, I think we've got time for one more. What does the Bible teach us regarding generational curses? How do generational curses affect Christians today? And how can we be delivered from these curses? Well, a good question. When you think of generational curses, think of the Decalogue, because those are the two primary passages, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, where God uh, addresses this issue. So I've just turned to Exodus 20. You shall not worship them or serve them, these false gods, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. In Deuteronomy 5, the identical um, statement is made. So Moses is dealing with... um, uh, Israel, and uh, when you think of these generational curses, think of what the Decalogue when it's given. Now, the context in the third place it's given is in Numbers 14. And in Numbers 14, if you remember, God sent through Moses 12 spies into the land, not to see if they could take the land, it was promised. But in terms of their human responsibility, how they would conquer it. And the people came and on back in unbelief, they listened to the report of the 10 and not the two. And and Moses, basically, uh, in response to God, says, you know, I just think I'm going to wipe these people out. And the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, God prays to Moses, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations. Very, very familiar. Here's the point. The effects of sin are naturally passed down from one generation to the next. So if I'm a drunkard, and I start giving my kid alcohol at 12 and 13, he may indeed follow my pattern of drunkenness. If I'm an immoral person and I watch porn, I might encourage my son to watch porn. And very often, that's what happens. And sin is generationally passed down from one generation to to the next of those who hate him. But understand, God is not saying, well, because I'm a porn master— that automatically means that God is going to punish the next couple generations. In your mind, you want to underscore Ezekiel chapter 18. The soul whose sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So if a man robs a bank, his son's not going to be punished for his robbing the bank. The the, the one who robbed the bank is. And that's God's point. And sadly today, there's a trend.